This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Our recommendations call for transformative change. They call for collaboration. They call for leadership. They call for you to champion these recommendations so that our communities in Nova Scotia and Canada will be safer. That's Michael McDonald. He's the chair of the commission, uh, the Mass Casualty Commission, the public inquiry into Canada's deadliest mass shooting, the 2020 massacre in Nova Scotia, and a plea to political leadership to heed the 130 recommendations in this report. And a lot of those involve the RCMP and a need for an overhaul. Uh, for change at the RCMP. As they say in the report, more than two years after the event, RCMP leadership had done very little to systematically evaluate its critical incidents response to the deadliest mass shooting in Canada's history. In our process, it was apparent that the organizational structure of the RCMP both contributes to these failings and makes it challenging to hold the organization accountable for its work. This report is pretty scathing in pointing to the many failures of the RCMP here and failures that occurred while this tragedy was unfolding, and failures that undoubtedly contributed to the loss of life. So that, that's pretty serious. There's so many questions about what happened here, how the RCMP screwed this up so badly, why information wasn't conveyed to the public in a more timely and accurate fashion, and what were the warning signs about Gabriel Wartman that were there? What did they know about him? There had been contact with him. They were aware of who this guy was. So could this have all been uh, avoided in the first place? So some big questions. Uh, Do we get the answers here in this report? Well, somebody who's followed all of this very closely, written extensively about it, it's Paul Polango, author, investigative journalist. He's the author of 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Paul, thanks so much for making some time for us here. I know it's a busy day for you, but welcome back to the program. Hey, good to be back. As I said, I just got back from Truro a few minutes ago from attending the uh, unveiling of this report. Well, let me get your initial impressions here. I mean, like I say, this is pretty scathing and in pointing to the many failures of the RCMP, the structural issues of the RCMP that need to change. What, what did you make of all of that, first of all? Well, I think it's absolutely dead on. I mean, I was sort of shocked that they came out so strongly because, you know, in the 76 days of hearing that, that were conducted in 2022, um, the commission sort of boxed things around uh, – didn't focus on a lot of things, wouldn't allow any sort of momentum to grow. There was, there was no emotion, nothing that people watching this closely had the feeling that they're not going to say anything bad about the RCMP. Right. And uh, when this came out, it was, whoa, you know, that there wasn't uh, very much in the report that, you know, the, virtually every sort of observation about the RCMP performance that day or that weekend was they didn't do this, didn't do that. They failed at this, they failed at that. And 
they hit on you know they hit the nail on the head because you know when I wrote my book, uh, well even before I wrote my book, I wrote an article on May twentieth or May twenty twenty where the one of the first articles I wrote about this, I said this was an epic failure of policing. The mm-hmm. RCMP and its Veterans Association fought back to the point where prior to the commission uh, beginning its hearings uh, in early twenty twenty two. Um, the Globe and Mail ran a story where the RCMP union chief was saying the RCMP was a had a textbook response to Portapec. Well, now the commission has shot that down and shown that so much marketing by the RCMP and its union is just that marketing. That this is a I've long contended in the books I've written that the RCMP is a danger to the public and a danger to its own members. The way it is structured now. And sadly, that all came true. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty staggering. I mean, they, you know, they talk about 2014 in Moncton when three officers were killed. They say in 2014, the RCMP conveyed accurate information to the public. In 2020 in Nova Scotia, they didn't. There was supposed to be a, 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 an emergency plan developed after 2014. They said the RCMP, they weren't even aware that, that, that a plan existed. Oh, it, it's unbelievable, Rob. It, it's like, uh, you know, these are the Keystone Cops, but dangerous and worse. They're not funny. And But you have supporters right across the country for the force because they, you know, it's like a religion. We believe in the RCMP, you know. Uh, you know, we have fond memories of the musical ride that have nothing to do with policing. And there are communities now seeing this problem and are starting to realize this that they're up against a marketing monster that sells itself, but it doesn't deliver. And that's what this report has brought out, that, as I said, they're dangerous because they, they, you know, the previous reports have found it has a broken culture, that culture uh, over overwhelms policy at every turn. And that's what's happened here. That no matter how much you try to instill the, the right thing to do in this force, it continues to do the wrong thing. You know, it was interesting. We spoke along the way, and there were concerns about, you know, whether the commission would hear everything they needed to hear and attempts maybe to keep out certain testimony or testimony about certain things that could paint the RCMP in a bad light. So as you indicated, I mean, there's some surprise here, you know, and and maybe in a good way, surprise that, you know, the commission was able to uh, get to the bottom of all of this and is willing to to call all of this out because, it seemed at times along the way that maybe the deck was stacked against this kind of transparency. Well, absolutely. Like, you know, when I started out, when I, I wrote my book early in the cycle, before almost to, to dovetail with the opening of the commission, to put on record all the facts that I could find and all the various scenarios that I could find that were out there, because it seemed that everyone was trying to cover this up. And I was going to force the government and the RCMP to deal with these things. And as that as it as it progressed, I had doubt that that was happening. And when I went there this morning, I was still like, "What is what's going to happen here?" Because they've not indicated that they're going to be tough in any way. But it turned out that voila, they were. Yeah. But you know. Let's not forget, I've got a couple of uh, notes I'm just looking at right now from uh, people in law enforcement are saying, but there's all kinds of stuff they've left out and didn't deal with. Well, we'll deal with that in the future. 
But right now, it's quite clear that, you know, the public who are being served by the RCMP or want to be served by the RCMP should be well aware that the problems in this force are so significant that it requires basically a teardown of the force and a restructuring of the force. You know, the prime minister was there today and I was, uh, you know, face to face with him at one point while I was doing a radio report in, in Halifax. And, uh, you know, he walked by me and I think he knew who I was and I definitely know who he was. He says, well, we're going to appoint the perfect person to be the commissioner of the RCMP, and they're going to fix it. That's like saying you've got this beaten down wreck of a car, and you're going to put a new driver in there, and they're going to make it run. That's not how we fix this. We fix this by governments getting together, creating new structures, creating rules and jurisdictions, and this is the way it's going to be. Then put good people in charge of those organizations, because... We need to reform policing to meet with the the, the 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 problems that we have in this country that are not that are sort of out of control. You know, crypto crime or cyber crime, um, fraud, and and national security issues that are not being dealt with because the RCMP is basically stalled. There's been a lot of questions around uh, Gabriel Wartman. And, you know, as we've learned through all of this, I mean, you know, police, what was it, well over a dozen times, they visit this guy's home. We, we understand that they had maybe tried to cultivate him or maybe use him as some kind of a source. Does this report, uh, Paul, give us any further clarity about any of these questions? No, I mean, along the way, well, what it does suggest is quite interesting that, Along the way, I was accused of being a conspiracy theorist because I said, this appears to be a a situation where Wartman or someone close to him is an agent or a confidential informant to the police. And there were all kinds of candidates for that. And at various times, the RCMP proffered uh, so-called evidence to show that this wasn't the case. But what the commission said was, we could not find evidence to disprove it. And that's exactly the point I was making, that the RCMP will close ranks in that kind of a situation and not they'll go down before revealing who was an agent and who was a confidential informant. We don't know, but the the commission didn't dismiss it either. And there's all kinds of suggestions that Wurman or someone close to him was involved in some sort of agency, either for the RCMP or maybe another law enforcement agency like CBSA or even, and this is, this is a, a stretch, but not out of the, the realm of possibilities, CFIS, because there was a lot of cross-border stuff going on, and especially out of northern Maine, which is a hotbed for uh, sort of right-wing radicals. So that's possible. Right. Well, and I mean, again, I mean, based on what we know, I mean, A, they visit him numerous times. They, they they maybe tried to cultivate him as some kind of a source. So it's not a big jump to go from they, they thought he could be a source to maybe he actually was. And I guess how else would the commission know unless the RCMP came forward and basically disclosed that information? Well, yeah, even the person that the officer who visited him 17 times and said, uh, oh, well, I just used to visit him and check in on him. Where's your notes? Oh, I have no notes. Right. And that was just allowed to slide by. And again, even if he wasn't a uh, source, I mean, like, why were they visiting? Where where were the, you know, the the red flags here that maybe this this guy was a problem, right? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, everyone knows he was a problem, but uh, you know, he was. You know, he had relatives who were Mounties. Uh, he hung out with Mounties and other police officers and sort of hobnobbed with them and occasionally partied with them. So he he seemed to have received a pass, but he was really, really close to the police, and the police were reluctant to seems to deal with him. Right, which, I, and I think we need some further explanation of still. I don't know if we'll ever get it. In the meantime, Paul, as you say, there's some you know real concrete recommendations here. There's some pretty scathing findings here. I don't know how resistant, you know, the brass of the RCMP will be to to these changes being implemented. I don't know what kind of political will exists to try to force these through. How optimistic are you that, you know, this will be a turning point and we'll see some major changes? Well, one could hope, but I mean, there are things going on, in, you know, across the country right now. I mean, Nova Scotia is clearly uh, not only Nova Scotia, but uh, communities in Nova Scotia like Amherst are looking or, or Cumberland County. Are, which is right beside Portapec, are looking at uh, taking the RCMP out of uh, municipal policing and creating a large regional force. The mm-hmm. same thing's going on in Grand Prairie in your province. Yep. Uh, you look at what's gone on in Surrey, the whole debate there about taking the RCMP out of their largest establishment, their, their largest attachment. There are good reasons for that. You know, they can't you know the the forces it's modeled today. The the government's own reports at the federal level show that uh, the force, as constituted, is unsustainable. You know, as I said in a recent podcast, do I have to buy the prime minister a dictionary for him to understand what the word unsustainable means? Yeah. And you know, for the voters in in, in various communities who are hiring the RCMP. They are unsustainable by their own reports show that. They can't attract enough people. They can't do the jobs they're supposed to do. They're not accountable. And that's one of the things that brought out, you know, the commission brought out today. We need higher levels of accountability because the RCMP is essentially unaccountable and they know it. So they do what they want to do and get away with they think they what's what they think they can get away with. We'll see where it all goes from here. In the meantime, as mentioned, the book, it's 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Ups, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. Paul Palango, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here. Anytime, Rob. Thank you. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's investigative journalist Paul Palango has mentioned his book, 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. A lot of questions still, I think. Right. And what was the nature then of that relationship between RCMP and Gabriel Wardman? Why were they visiting him so many times? And if you were visiting him because you were concerned about maybe the threat he might pose, then how did we not prevent this from happening? And if there's some other reason, then what was it? Was he some kind of an informant? The the commission was unable to get to the bottom of that. And that kind of information would be closely guarded by the RCMP unless they're willing to disclose it. It would be hard for the, the commission to really get a definitive answer. But, I mean, beyond that, the failings here are, are just at every level. It says, if, for example, past inquiries have concluded these problems create a toxic workplace culture within the RCMP. We find they also impede the RCMP's operational effectiveness. They say the RCMP needs a policy of admitting its mistakes, accepting responsibility for them, and ensuring that accountability mechanisms are in place for addressing its errors. Like, that's pretty scathing. 
but just the whole situation as it was unfolding and and the threat that was very real over those 13 hours over April 18th and 19th. The report finds the RCMP was woefully unprepared to handle those events. The responding detachment didn't have an emergency operational plan, despite the fact that they were supposed to. The Mounties on the ground weren't aware of plans that were supposed to be in place. Then, of course, there was the lack of information that was being conveyed. The RCMP's failure deprived community members of the opportunity to evaluate risks to their safety and to take measures to better protect themselves. There was no emergency alert that went out. There were some vaguely worded tweets, like at 11.30 p.m. on April 18th. The RCMP is responding to a firearms complaint in the port peak area. That's it. So here we have a guy who's dressed like a police officer in a police vehicle, who is armed, who is a threat, who is a danger. And the RCMP called that a firearms complaint. So they didn't convey information to the public, information that could have made a difference in whether people lived or died. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon, 403-974-8255. I want to focus right now on electricity rates in Alberta. We did see electricity prices uh, surge this winter. Uh, The government capped what customers on the regulated rate option would pay. But that's about to come to an end. So what does the end of the regulated rate option mean? And what do people need to know about electricity prices, you know, it's, it's complicated in Alberta, for sure, but uh, there's, there's some important things uh, folks need to realize. So there's an interesting new report out from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary on the regulated rate option trap. And so what do people need to know about what's coming and what all of this means? So joining us uh, for more, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, one of the authors uh, of this uh, report, which you can find at policyschool.ca. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Sarah Hastings-Simon with the University of Calgary, senior, or rather a research fellow with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Uh, Great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, So the regulated rate option, let's start with an explanation of, of what that is. Sure. So the regulated rate option is really sort of the default electricity option in Alberta. So if you sign up for electricity and you don't make a selection um, with a competitive retailer, then you're on the rate, the so-called regulated rate. And that really is um, a rate that changes from month to month. And it's based on a regulated formula and it moves with the price, the wholesale market prices of electricity. And so that is the rate when we talk about the uh, rate cap that the government put in place, that is the rate that they capped. Um, And that's different from, you know, you can uh, shop around and there's a lot of different competitive retailers that that, um, have different offerings, you know, fixed rates where they guarantee a certain price for a certain amount of time. Um, Those are alternatives to the uh, regulated rate. Mm -hmm. Do we know how it breaks down then in terms of what percentage of consumers are on the regulated rate option versus those that, that have other arrangements? Yeah, so it's been falling over time, the number on the RRO since it was introduced, um, but it has fallen more uh, quickly recently as the prices have increased and the um, competitive rates have, have been a better deal. 
So right now, or at least the last available data shows that about 35% of um, households are on the regulated rate option. So the majority are not anymore, um, but that's still, you know, a, quite a significant number of households, some of whom, um, you know, may just not be um, aware of the other option or haven't t- taken the time to look, um, but some actually don't have a choice. And why is that? So the competitive retailers um, can, can and, and most do require either a certain level of credit or um, a combination of a you know, credit score and then requiring a security deposit. And that is because, uh, you know, if customers don't pay their bill, they're, they're on the hooks for that. Um, and on the regulated rated option, that's where you have the government provides um, that kind of backstop, provides that guarantee because, you know, we think that it's important that everybody obviously has access to electricity. That's a fundamental need in, in society. And so if you are, um, you know, if you do have lower credit and, and you can't um, and or you can't afford that uh, security deposit that would be required, then um, you may not have a choice, and that's where really um, some of the some of the, the big problems come in with the, the situation that we're in today. Right. So we might be more likely to see lower income Albertans on the regulated rate option. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and our estimates are you know up to probably not not quite, but up to half of the people that are still on the regulated rate um, would would find it difficult to get off either because of their credit or or because of you know the difficulty in having um, uh, the cash to to put that security deposit down. Okay, so this cap is is ending then. What what do these coming changes mean then for the regulated rate option and, and those who are on it? So the regulated rate will go back to reflecting the market prices that has come down. Um, but importantly, the cap was um, really a, a deferred payment. And so the government essentially sort of made a loan um, for the amount of money that costs above the cap. And now that money has to be paid back um, and the plan is to have that collection happen on the regulated rate. So basically the cost of this cap, which was um, about um, $200 uh, million for, for uh, consumers, um, will have to be paid back now over the, the schedules that it starts uh, April 1st and it goes for the next uh, you know, year and a half to, to December of 2024. Um, and only those that are, remain on the regulated rate um, are paying that back because basically that cost is recovered through an additional charge on the rate. It looks like that charge um, for the month of April will be about two and a half cents. Um, And this is where, you know, we really see the issue occurring that um, those who are, you know, able to leave the rate um, will probably increasingly do so. And it sounds like, um, you know, that's already maybe starting to happen as the competitive fixed rates are you know, more attractive and then even more so, you know, because they, they don't face this additional two and a half cents charge. Um, but that means that those who don't have a choice, who aren't able to leave the rate, um, are going to be left, you know, holding the full bill for that cap, paying back, you know, the, the deferral that they maybe benefited from, but also paying back the cost of that deferral that others benefited from. And these are these are the folks in Alberta who are least able to afford um, that extra cost. And so, you know, that's where uh, my co-author, uh, Dr. Schaefer, and I, um, you know, think it's quite important that this is something that gets addressed at the policy level so that we're not, uh, you know, taking the cost of this policy and putting it on those who are least able to afford it. Right, because, I mean, you know, this certainly shows that those who are able to get on the fixed rates have really been in, in the best situation through all of this. Yes. I mean, you know, if you go back in time and if you had chosen to get onto a fixed rate in, you know, 2022, you probably saved about $600 um, over the year. 
Um, and so, you know, that's really a double whammy, right? I mean, there's a very near-term problem that we have now where, you know, who's going to be uh, left covering the cost and paying this back. But it also means the structure of the um, guarantee that's required on the competitive rate means that, you know, again, those who who arguably would benefit most from um, those cost savings as well as the certainty. So having that fixed rate where you know what your electricity rate is going to be going forward um, are not able to access it. And so, you know, we propose a couple of um, potential fixes for that. You know, one is that the government could step in and cover the, you know, kind of security and, and credit requirements so that all customers in Alberta um, are able to access those competitive rates. Um, but even if they do that, they're still going to have to address this issue that's been created of the $200 um, million bill that has to get paid back and, and the fact that we're already seeing people, you know, leaving the pool of, of people who would be paying for that. Right. So it might have to be a combination of the two, or the government could just, what, cover the $200 million and... And leave it at that? Would that, I mean, would that be one option? Yeah, so I mean, one option is that government could, um, you know, basically in some way write off a loan that's been given for that $200 million, um, while also, you know, going forward, fixing that underlying issue. But even if you allow, you know, everybody to access those other rates, you're not going to fix the problem. You, you still have to do something with this $200 million bill that's, that's come due. Right. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that we've seen, you know, the number of Albertans on the regulator rate option, or at least the percentage, continue to fall. Like, what are the implications then if that continues to go down or the implications of a policy that makes it easier for people to get out of that trap? Well, you know, eventually we may see the regulated rate go away uh, completely. Um, and mm -hmm. again, you know, setting aside kind of the the bill for the cap, um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? And, and in some sense, it was um, put into place originally, you know, as somewhat of a temporary measure for people to make that transition. Um, so, you know, we, we certainly could see a transition to a fully competitive retail market. Um, and that would require government to step in and, and kind of cover that uh, security uh, or, or credit requirements. Um, that, that may be the better option in the long term, um, but it still leaves uh, this other question of how to cover the $200 million um, that, you know, is there and, and we can't kind of go back in time and avoid. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, much more, as mentioned, policyschool.ca. Sarah, thank you so much for the insight on all of this. Appreciate you making some time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, there you go. That's uh, Sarah Hastings-Simon, um, research fellow with the School of Public Policy, professor at the uh, University of Calgary, policyschool.ca, where you can find this latest report looking at the regulated rate option and the situation we now find ourselves in, where the government capped those prices for those on the regulated rate option. But that was basically a deferral. So there's a cost here, a gap here of $200 million dollars. And so those who remain on the regulated rate option are now going to face an additional charge on their bills to pay back all of that money. So you didn't really save anything. You've just kind of spread it all out. But those who are on fixed rates actually did save. As we're all aware, Canada's queen recently passed away. Uh, Canada now has a king, King Charles. So, no, Canada no longer has a queen. However, there are a group of Canadians uh, that believe that we do. In fact, one of the members of that group is the woman who herself claims to be the actual secret Queen of Canada. Now, this all seems really kind of nutty, 
which I guess it is. But she has quite a following. Romana Didulo is her name, from Victoria. Claims that she is Canada's head of state, Canada's queen. Now, this is kind of an offshoot from what's known as the QAnon sort of conspiracy theories. There's definitely some overlap here that those same shadowy forces in the U.S. are the ones who have instilled her as Canada's head of state. Now, again, it seems weird and nutty, and sure, I guess it's all of those things. But how concerned should we be about the actions of her followers and the implications for people who are really getting caught up in this? You know, the concern for vigilante action or even violent action. I remember, and I think it was back in 2021, the followers of this group were sending cease and desist letters to pharmacies and vaccine clinics, ordering them to stop providing vaccinations and saying that if they did not, they would be arrested and prosecuted for crimes against humanity. All of this was under the authority of Canada's actual and and secret queen. But people are really getting caught up in this to the point where they are losing money or having their utilities shut off. Just recently, uh, this QAnon queen announced that they were going to start printing their own currency. So it is all strange, but how worrying is it? There's an interesting new report uh, looking at this movement and and the potential concern here that, that this or other movements like it might represent Joining us to talk more about it is the author of this report. Uh, Christine Sarteshi is an associate professor of social work and criminology at Chatham University, uh, writes about groups and movements like this at Sovereign Citizen Watch. Dr. Sarteshi, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, let's try that. Sorry, there we go, Dr. Sarteshi. Good to have you with us here. Thanks. Nice to talk to you. Uh, when did you first become aware of this this woman and this movement? How long has it been around? Well, I first started picking up on it, I'd say probably about two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's been around quite some time, I think, but she really picked up steam uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, it certainly seems to be the case. It maybe is true of a lot of some, you know, this, some of these groups or movements or conspiracy theories. How, yeah, how, do you des- how do you describe this this movement? Where, where does it fit in with some of these other groups or conspiracy theories? Well, um, you know, I think it's actually fairly unique in the sense that this is a person who actually, um, you know, many of the groups I study believe that the government isn't legitimate. Uh, but in her case, she actually went a step further. And not only does she believe that the Canadian government is illegitimate, but in her mind, she has actually replaced the government. And uh, she is operating as the head of state, the commander in chief, uh, the national indigenous chief also. So she has given herself three titles and is operating as such, um, you know, with the belief that she is these things. And how is that explained or what what is the the case that's presented to try to convince people that, that they should believe this and that they should follow her? I think it's just her. Uh, I think in part is her, you know, actually going out and driving across Canada and meeting with people. Um, a lot of those meet and greets are posted on her Telegram page. Uh, she posts a lot, um, makes a lot of decrees, which are basically laws, um, and operates as though these things are absolutely true and has, you know, developed quite a following of people who do not question uh, what she says. I mentioned the, what's known as QAnon, the idea that there are these shadowy forces and 
and, and a lot of it has more to do with Donald Trump and American politics, but it feels like this is kind of an offshoot, that basically she claims that the same shadowy forces are the ones that installed her as, as all of these things? Yeah, I mean, that she, um, she believes that um, she did some, under, some work uh, that led her uh, into this position where she removed uh, um, the Chinese communist uh, military from Canada and that uh, they were um, operating to attack Canada and the United States and Mexico. But in her uh, story, she says that she removed them single-handedly and basically saved uh, humanity from entering World War III and as such earned her title as queen. Now, and I think to a lot of people maybe just hearing about this, this all seems really off the charts kind of weird, which mm-hmm. it is. But, you know, this she has a significant following. Are we able to or to what extent are we able to quantify that? Well, the best way we can quantify it, um, it seems like, is the number of followers she has on social media. So she primarily operates in the space of called Telegram. Uh, and she has, uh, I think at one point, she had about 73,000 followers. And people who are involved in her groups or who follow her, um, they post messages basically all day long, um, whether it's, much of it is just declaring their love for her. Um, some people are you know, doing things on her behalf. Uh, people are still sending cease and desist orders. Um, there are specific people who are posting that they are out there either serving them electronically or even in person still to this day. Right. And and that's been part of the concern. At what point does some of this cross a line? And I, I know for a lot of these, you know, pharmacies or even police stations that were receiving these letters, you know, they might just kind of roll their eyes. But if mm-hmm. the followers are prepared to go that far, print off these letters, deliver these letters, make sure people are aware of the implied threat here. There is that concern. I mean, are are some prepared to go even further? I mean, it's hard to say, and obviously the hope is that's not the case, but when people are so motivated uh, that they are altering their personal lives and allowing for this um, movement to be part of their lives, so much so that they're willing to go personally hand out these, um, you know, completely fraudulent, um, have these uh, cease and desist orders have no power at all, but yet they believe they do. Um, And I know we saw that just firsthand with the Peterborough incident when a group of them went to try to arrest the police. And I think for some people, it was kind of stunning the reality that they actually thought that they were going to knock on the door of the police station and arrest them and that the police would go willingly. And they actually believe that. And that is shocking that they believe that. But that's the degree of belief that some of them do have uh, in her cause and her that she's actually the queen. What's the thing? I mean, yeah, there, there are conspiracy theories here, but, you know, this this kind of feels like a cult at the same time, too. Is it, is it you think? It's hard to say for sure. I think some people would um, say that. Um, they dress alike. They believe, uh, you know, in the same ideas. They actually now have a, a daily um, message they put out where they speak to, quote-unquote, we the people, uh, where they are viewing what can only be uh, regarded or characterized as propaganda uh, um, about, you know, their beliefs, encouraging people to read Romana's decrees, her laws, study them, take them to people, let other people know about them. 
So it does seem that way um, by all accounts. Right. And, and, you know, this is one of the, the consequences of, of that sort of belief system. So at, at one point, uh, Romana had declared that all utilities and mortgages were all basically free or, or forgiven, a, a royal decree of hers. Yeah. And so when people start believing that and they stop paying their mortgages, stop paying their utility bills, you know, bad things happen. And, and we've, we're starting to see that, aren't we? Yeah, there have been. Um, I was I, I traced uh, a couple of cases of at least three this week uh, where people had, you know, one of their utilities shut off. And they honestly believe that that could not have happened to them. And they are stunned when it does happen. And they will leave a message on the message board begging for help, asking for Romana to send in the military to help them, things of that nature. Um, And she almost never replies to any of those. And a lot of those messages end up getting deleted. Uh, So we don't even, you know, it's not because people will often ask me, how do people not know that these aren't real, don't they see other people saying that they lost their power or their cars or whatever too? But part of the issue is that they, those get deleted off of the Telegram message boards so people may not see them and they may not realize that these things are not real. It certainly seems like the, the police are paying attention uh, to mm-hmm. all of this. I, I think they've had a couple of um, maybe visits with her. I think she was detained by police at one point, maybe back in 2021. But Otherwise, yeah. you know, there's not a lot that can be done here, is there? I mean, these kinds of claims or this kind of a movement isn't really illegal per se, but it's it's something worth keeping an eye on, it sounds like. Sure. I mean, I think that we're at the point now where people are being harmed. Uh, she's saying things that are not real and people are believing in them and they're believing in these ideas by choice. Um, however, you know, they're actually suffering and their families are suffering when people lose their homes. Uh, you know, they are literally sometimes kicked out of their homes by the bailiff. Uh, their entire home is taken over and they are living out in the streets and or in their cars. And they have animals and families and kids. And, um, you know, so people are being harmed by these ideas. Well, more on your work on all of this, SovereignCitizenWatch.com. Uh, Dr. Sarteshi, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thanks so much. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Dr. Christine Sarteshi, uh, Associate Professor of Social Social Work and Criminology at Chatham University, uh, the author of this report called The Social Phenomenon of Romana Dodillo. And a weird combination of conspiracy theory and cult here. Right. The conspiracy uh, theory being that the government is not actually legitimate. Those that claim to be governing this country really aren't. Right. And that's not new in conspiracy theories. What's unique here, as the guest points out, is having an individual say, I am actually the true queen ruler of this land. And people are buying it. People are following her. Yeah, I think if if you you get hooked in by this sort of thing and and you lose your home or you have utilities shut off, people aren't going to have a lot of sympathy for that. Like, you've made some some pretty bad choices here. But it's happening. I think it's worth understanding, trying to better understand why it's happening, why people get sucked in by this. And what are the consequences when they do? If people are true believers to the point where they are convinced they don't have to pay their utilities, they don't have to pay their mortgages, the queen made it all go away. Well, when the same queen tells you to go make arrests... Or, or take some kind of action, 
if you're prepared to go that far, you're willing to listen, you believe all of this, right? What, what more might these followers be capable of? Anyway, you can reach us here this afternoon, 403-974-8255. We are back with more right after this. Welcome back. Rob Rickenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon. We'll get back to more of your phone calls in a bit. Got a few other things to get to as well. I want to talk about social media right now and and our relationship with social media. There have been no shortage of headlines lately about the big social media companies, what's going on at Twitter, what's going on at Meta, which owns Facebook and and Instagram, and whether these are, are in any way beneficial to society. We had a lot of concern about you know, the kind of algorithms these companies use and just, you know, whether it's just pumping too much negativity into society, concerns about the impact on young people and their mental health. But it's hard to imagine, it's hard to remember a time before all of this. Like we used to all have lives outside of social media. We didn't used to have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Are we ever going to get back to that? I mean, probably not. I don't think social media is going anywhere. But it is within each of our own powers to just decide for ourselves to cut it out of our lives. Would you be able to? Right? So, I mean, I I don't really post much as much. I'm on social media maybe less than I was. But, I mean, I still use Twitter for staying up to date on what's going on. Still use Facebook and Instagram to try to stay up to date on what's going on, you know, with friends or family, that sort of thing. But then, you know, again... We were able to do all of those things uh, before these platforms came along. Well, our next guest, uh, two years ago, uh, decided he was going to cut out social media and says the experience has been worth it and believes others should consider doing the same. He's got a book coming soon called Delete Social Media, Why You Should Find Meaning and Belonging uh, Offline. And you can read uh, his op-ed. It's up at uh, OttawaCitizen.com. I think maybe in some of the other post-media uh, outlets as well. But OttawaCitizen.com with the headline, Why I Deleted Social Media and You Should Too. Joining us on the line is the author of that piece, Danny Randell. He's Development Coordinator at the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. Danny, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so is that right, two years uh, since you, you got rid of all of this? Two years, yeah. Uh, Facebook was the first to fall, actually, so that's been about three years. But then two years since I got rid of Instagram, and I'm I'm enjoying it. Okay, so these these are the two meta companies. So does this also apply to to Twitter or any other platforms? Twitter, I guess technically Twitter actually was the first to go, but I was not really okay. a super user of Twitter as I was with Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, well, those are the big two. And presumably, you're not on TikTok or anything else, right? No, and, and actually TikTok was, was part of sort of the catalyst, I guess, for me getting rid of the other accounts because I think I was quite aware of how uh, hyper-addictive that platform was. And it was only when I started sort of analyzing the other platforms in the wake of my uh, TikTok addiction that I started to say, maybe all of these actually I'd be better off without Right. Well, let's expand on that then. Why you made that decision? Because, you know, one option would simply be to cut back, to use them less. But you decided that this was something that you just needed to cut out of your life altogether. So why did you do that? Yeah, I tried the sort of 
slow approach at first, uh, just maybe deleting the apps off of the phone. I know a lot of people talk about deleting the apps off of the phone or just using it less. Um, I think the thing is, especially as a millennial, I feel like we've been almost rewired to constantly go back to our smartphones. And so even deleting the apps, there's just this sort of mindless interaction with a smartphone where you're looking for something to do. So I feel like because I was so used to going into these social media platforms for entertainment, uh, as soon as I delete the apps, I just look to other applications to sort of fill that void. And that Mm -hmm. wasn't really alleviating the problem. The problem was that I was spending too much time on my phone seeing the world through through the screen instead of through my own eyes. And that was really the the issue for me. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, yeah, if we don't have the smartphones, we don't have the social media. And if we get rid of the social media and we still have the phones, there are other kind of mindless distractions there. There are indeed. And I think what I've tried to do is just fill those spaces with more useful uh, distractions, if you will. So I have a couple of news applications on my phone, a couple of newspaper apps. And for me, if I do have downtime, I'm absolutely okay with spending some time reading the paper because I'm being informed about what's going on. And I think one of the things you mentioned is, you know, we used to figure out what was going on before we had social media, but uh, now we sort of use those platforms as our news services. And oftentimes we don't get the best news from those services. We may just be reading headlines and bylines, um, but I feel if I'm spending my time reading an actual paper, I'm getting the full picture. What about social connections? And for a lot of folks, you know, Facebook and Instagram are ways to stay, stay in touch with friends or family. What about that? Yeah, that's that's a tough one, actually, Rob. I think uh, that was probably one of the biggest reasons I struggled with deleting it, because I thought, well, I can just get rid of these off my phone, maybe log into my computer every once in a while. But it was there was so many reasons. It wasn't just the algorithms. It was also sort of the, the data mining and, um, and, and all these other sort of accoutrements that come with social media that just made me think it was, it was worth ridding myself of it altogether. And in terms of keeping in touch with people, I think we are so empowered uh, today in a technological age with so many other options to still stay in touch with people. We've got messaging platforms like WhatsApp and Signal. We've got um, Skype and FaceTime. So I think we're still empowered to stay in touch with people. We just maybe don't need the play-by-play of what's happening. Yeah, that's the thing. I think ultimately what matters is those connections. And, and you know, that means spending time with people when that's an option. So I do wonder times, you know, it's, I'd like to know what's going on in people's lives. But sometimes it's a lot of irrelevant information. I want to know what's going on big picture with a friend. I don't necessarily need to know that, okay, they had a dinner at this place last night. That That's... It's not really connecting with people, is it? Yeah, it's true. And I think one of the things that's happened for me is because I'm out of the loop, I find myself having actually a great conversation with a friend when I haven't seen them in a while Um, because immediately our conversation turns to life things. And there's this pressure to know exactly what's happening in everyone's life every time you see them doesn't exist anymore. You just have to ask those questions and then have good conversations and catch up like the old times, I guess. So what kind of response have you been getting, other from when you know you tell people about this, uh, people have read your piece today, and I know you, you got a book coming soon on it, but you know what's, what sort of reaction have you, you had? It's, it's funny, Rob, you know, actually the number one reaction I get from people is, wow, that's amazing. I wish I could do that. 
And it's quite funny because I know how they feel. I felt similarly before I deleted my accounts. Uh, but you can't. Everybody that wants to get rid of these things really, really can do it. And it really, they make it so intimidating almost, the platforms, because your fear of missing out is, is so strong. And then oh, you yeah. kind of dig around to find the delete button and everything seems so final and so permanent and you're afraid of erasing these memories. But, um, you know, it really is doable. And I think it's, it feels quite liberating when you actually commit to it. Well, as I mentioned, the piece that's online at OttawaCitizen.com. Uh, the book is forthcoming, Delete Social Media, Why You Should Find Meaning and Belonging Offline. Really interesting conversation here, Danny. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thank you so much for having me. All the best, Danny. Take care. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Calgary-based writer Danny Randell. As mentioned, he's a development coordinator with the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. Uh, his piece up at OttawaCitizen.com on why he deleted social media and why he thinks you should too. And maybe there are a lot of people who have kind of come to this conclusion themselves or people who have just started to wean themselves off it. They use it a lot less. But yeah, I think there's still a big segment of the population. It's not specific to any age group or generation, just a lot of people in general that are just kind of addicted to social media. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.